Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing, happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. So I am feeling a little under the weather. I made you laugh and it led to a 60 second coughing fit. So I will do my best to be as unfunny as (laughs) (laughs) Thankfully, I am uh, the one who edits it so I can edit out all the coughing. But if there's any like odd like, whoa, that sounds really chopped off. It's because I went into a coughing fit and edited it out rather than coughing in your ears, dear listeners. Okay, so we wanted to dish about a very special topic close to our hearts. And Jackie, you had this idea. So why don't you go ahead and tell us what inspired it? Well, it's so funny. The topic is instrument or read malfunctions because when I was at the Midwest Double Read Society uh, double read day this weekend and I had a fantastic time. Shout out to my awesome hosts, Tess Delaplane and Leah Uribe. I was deciding whether we should dish on impulse purchases because I definitely impulse bought a vocal <laughs> or instrument malfunctions because while I was putting vocals in and out of my instrument for said impulse for purchase, my whisper keypad fell off. And one of the vendors had to, shout out Robert Jordan, uh, put my instrument back together so I could play the guest artist recital at the end of the day. (laughs) So yeah, I thought, wouldn't that be funny to talk about instrument malfunctions? And you know, we've been pretty vulnerable on some recent episodes and our listeners are showing up to trauma bond with us because this is one of the biggest responses we've maybe (laughs) ever had (laughs) for a dish topic. Y'all showed up. Yes. But, you know, everyone shares a little in this sharing caring circle. So yeah, I will start off, you know, having a pad fall off and having a experienced repair person there to fix it is not super traumatic in terms of the grand scheme of instrument malfunctions. Um, So my story is from my oboe days, actually. Sixth grade, 11 year old Jackie playing the oboe in beginning band. And all of a sudden I went to practice my oboe and no sound would come out. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what's happening? Like, I feel like when I blow, like nothing's happening. Theoretically, when you blow, sound should happen. Theoretically, yes. So my, uh, (laughs) we're laughing because I just had a coughing fit. My mom took it to the repair person and they're like, we don't know what's going on. We're going to have to send it out. 
and it came back with a little piece of paper and taped to it was this is the object that was lodged in the top joint of the oboe and it was an apple stem what how did it get into the top joint of my oboe the only reasonable explanation is carelessness <laughs> i must have been like oh hold up let me stop playing this oboe f- for one second and take a bite out of this apple and let me throw this apple stem in my cave and like twist off the stem <laughs> Or, yes, either the apple eating was happening over the case or the oboe was like on the floor <laughs> near debris teachers. Your students aren't that bad. If you haven't had a student come to you with an apple stem in their oboe, you're doing great. Oh, my God. <laughs> Can you believe that? An apple stem in my oboe. I've never heard of that happening before. Okay, enough about, I can feel the judgment from here, for sure. (laughs) Okay, girl, tell me your story. Okay. So the judgment Um, can shift to you from me. Well, first of all, there's too many to count. But the most recent one is a few, I don't know, maybe a month ago, uh, the little known oboist Alex Klein was in town. I've heard of him. Giving a concert in Hattiesburg. And uh, so I had the pleasure of playing first oboe in the Mozart concerto, like in the orchestra with oh. uh, just a little nobody named Alex Klein. <laughs> it was so much fun. It was wonderful. The um, the hall was so cold. Oh, you know, I got that marigot plastic top joint. So I was like, no problem. Well, I, uh, sometime in the, I don't know, first like 10 minutes of rehearsal, I look down next to me and I see this white circle and I was like, what is that? (laughs) It looked like a Mentos. I was like, did someone throw a Mentos on my read game? (laughs) (laughs) It was throwing mints. I pick it up and I was like, this looks like a pad. And then... I look at my oboe and I'm just kind of looking it up and down and I see that the C key has no pad on it. So my C key, my low C pad just gave up. It was too cold. It gave up and it jumped right off. It was like, no, thank you. At least it's low C though. That's like the grand scheme of pads to lose on an oboe. That's not like the worst, right? I look through the part and I was like, you know what? There aren't any low C's. So I should be fine. I'm good. (laughs) But yeah, that was an adventure. Yeah. It just hopped right off. It was like, I'm too cold. I'm leaving. Okay. Well, our listeners have some stories too. Oh my God. Some of y'all have the nightmares of all nightmares that have actually happened to you. I know. Um, Since I'm like sicky icky, let's have you do the heavy lifting in the reading and I'll just provide the color commentary. Okay. So I'm going to start with this one. Joelle Simone Wagner says, During a morning dress rehearsal for a performance that evening, my neck strap got caught on my high A key while I was trying to put my bassoon away, and it completely bent the key off the horn at a 90-degree angle. Oh, my God. I had never had an accident of this level on a bassoon before, and it happened to my 7,000 series heckle. (laughs) (gasps) I mean... All bassoons are special and important, but that is a very valuable instrument. (laughs) 
I immediately called my repairman and he was able to get me from the train station, magic the key back into place, and I was able to play the concert that night. Wow. No harm, no foul. No, listen, we all need to do our part to thank the repair people. Yes. And keep them happy. Yes. Do they want baked goods? Do they want gift cards? Do they want tips? Foot massages. Pedicures. This one is from Andrew. I was playing principal in a production of Marriage of Figaro and my whisper keypad and pad holder fell off completely. I have also had reeds crack mid-performance, but my favorite is when a student brought in their bassoon with a cracked vocal. So we go to the backup school vocal and find that it has been completely filled and packed with rocks and sand. Uh, What? Wait. Okay. So the boke one vocal cracked and they're like, one that's okay. Cracked. We have this other vocal. Oh wait, it's filled with sand. Sand. Is that some preservative that I'm not aware? That can't be. It's so abrasive. Sand. Somebody packed the school vocal to the brim with rocks and sand. That must have just been like a destructive student. I'm guessing, Has right? To have been. Does this make you feel better about your? Apple Apple stem stem in the (laughs) oboe. Wow. That's sad. That makes me sad. That poor bogle. I know. I know. This is from Michael. Earlier this year, I was playing in a humid cold church and my condensation plus humidity already present swelled the tenon corks. Mm -hmm. I was trying to take the top joint off as I didn't have a pull through swab, just a feather and was trying to be smart in this scenario. I didn't want the water in my instrument before the service. Well, lo and behold, I twist hard and go too far and mangle my left side pinky cluster. The church congregation definitely heard multiple F-bombs. Oh. (laughs) It takes three different repairmen trying at it over a couple of months for it to stop binding, and it's still not quite the same. Tombo isn't great on this oboe. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. This one is from Rachel. Went to pick up oboe off its stand in a rehearsal, and it fell, hitting the edge of the raised part of the stage and fell to the next level down with us looking on in horror. Uh, so this is like multiple multi-feet drops for an oboe? That's what it sounds like. Oh my God. What is this? How did it stay together? Is this oboe made of rubber? <laughs> Naturally, it didn't work and ended up doing the concert on only on the only oboe nearby, which belonged to a local schoolboy. <laughs> a local Schoolboy, come here. Let me use your oboe. Please rid it of any apple stems at post haste. <laughs> the other was before a concert with Sir Roger Norrington conducting. I carefully strode over the bassoon case in my way, and whilst doing that, my oboe case fell to the ground. When I got back to the venue, I found the F-sharp pad had come away from the oboe and so wrapped PTFE tape. That sounds like plumber's tape. Uh, around it and kept fingers crossed for the Beethoven symphony we were about to play. I was playing first as well, so nowhere to hide. It survived, but I have never been so on edge in a concert in my life. (laughs) Dang. Oh, but different names for things reminds me. Um, Thank you for the listeners who showed up for Chamomile. Oh my God. 
Shout out to Canada and the UK for their chamomile tea. <laughs> Y'all have some kind of fancy chamomile tea over there. Chamomile. That's all I'm calling it from now on. And if someone corrects me, I'll be like, that's what they hunt in England. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this one is from Jessica. My sophomore year of college, I was asked to play Contra Bassoon on the Mother Goose Suite, my first ever Contra experience. That should not happen. (laughs) Mother Goose being your first Contra experience, that's not a thing that should ever happen. I never did figure out how to play the high B flat, just took it down an octave. Bless. When I showed up to fetch the Contra an hour before the concert and warm up, it wouldn't play any notes at all. Luckily, I found the issue. A pad was stuck open and I used my read file to push the bent spring back into place. And there's probably still a small scar on my from my file on the BGSU Contra Bassoon. So stressful. <laughs> and that's the worst piece, too. Like, normally for many Contra pieces, you could just, like, sit there and pretend to play. And everyone would be like, sounds fabulous, honey. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, this one is from friend of the podcast, Aaron Hill. I was playing Strauss's four last songs last March, and the spring that holds up my A-flat broke, so I had to use my left pinky to prop it open most of the time and let it go any time I played an A-flat. I made it to the end of the piece, but my pinky was bleeding from being on the wrong side of that key for so long. And isn't the, aren't the four last songs all about, like, dying? Yeah. So Aaron was like, I am dying. <laughs> My A-flat is killing me. <laughs> also, the mental gymnastics that Aaron had to do anytime. <laughs> yeah, listen, you have to know about acoustics. You have to know how your instrument works. <gasps> Better you than me, Aaron. That's all I have to say. Okay, this one is from LeBaron. I was in the middle of a quartet rehearsal in undergrad and was using a studio horn while mine was in the shop. The left pinky keys, B, B flat, E flat, and F screw was loose. And I didn't know until I was about to play and the whole rod came off. <laughs> it just like catapulted from the instrument. It like dropped off and he's like, well. <laughs> okay. This one is from Shannon. And this one almost made me cry. <laughs> I was rehearsing in a very hot room of my collaborative pianist's house when a piece of sheet music fell. I quickly reached for it, not knowing my harness had unhooked from the boot joint and the wing and boot fell to the ground, dot, 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 snapping off my wing joint. Oh, like the tenon of the wing joint snapped off inside the boot joint, I bet. Leaving part of it inside the boot. (gasps) Three weeks before my junior recital. three months after covid shut the planet down (laughs) covid it's early covid everyone's afraid to leave their homes everyone's afraid to touch wind instruments of another person your wing joint gets snapped off three weeks before your junior recital uh let's see the ordeal is a nightmare the pictures are still scary for me to look at fox took wonderful care of my bassoon though and it all worked out in the end of course (laughs) so this the moral of the story is be nice to your double read repair person and be nice to your instruments i did mute that tab before we started recording for the record
Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reads, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Hey, oboists! Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Effleray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish, Abby Yackel-Held, who teaches oboe at The Ohio State oh University. <laughs> welcome. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. It's, it's great to talk to you today. We're excited to have you, and we would love to start to get to know you by hearing how you came to play the oboe. How'd you get started? Oh, gosh. Um... So I actually recently was listening to your podcast and you were interviewing my teacher from high school, Emily Breebach. Mm-hmm. I studied She's with her. amazing. Yeah. And I studied with her when I was in high school and I learned <laughs> listening to that interview with her that we were similar in that we both wanted to start on the trombone. But my band director was a bit sexist and he said, no, that's for boys. Try again. <gasps> And so uh, eventually we settled on the clarinet and you have to understand, um, I grew up in Texas high school band programs. So my beginner class of sixth grade clarinetists at my one junior high had 40 beginner clarinets (laughs) and I won the first chair test. Yeah. And I, with every chair test, I always remained within like those top six chairs. And my band director was just thinking, I think you need a challenge. What what do you think of the oboe? And I was like, I have no idea what it is, but are there fewer oboe players and ensembles (laughs) than clarinet players? And he was like, oh yeah, sometimes there's just one of one or two of you. So I thought, okay, switch me. (laughs) And he made me finish the year on clarinet. And in the summer, he handed me an oboe, a reed and a fingering chart. And he said, good luck. (laughs) Okay, I have one tiny follow up question. Mm. Were you thinking that this switch would make your life less stressful? A (laughs) and B, how wrong were you? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, The 
the concern with the numbers was just that even as a sixth grader in Texas, I was already feeling the competitive nature mm -hmm. that came with it. So that was my motivation was mm -hmm. I wanted to be uh, in an environment that was less competitive. And as we all know, fewer competitors doesn't mean that it's less competitive. It'll, it, if you show up to an orchestral audition or a university interview it, between two people, 50-50 is still not great odds, especially when everyone's, you know, so talented. So it only takes one other person to beat you. So that's, that's kind of depressing. It's depressing, but it's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a third follow-up question. Did your band director tell you that you would eventually have to make your own reads? I don't think so. But so if he had, I probably would have thought that was cool because I was oh. like a crafty kid. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> like people are always, you know, asking me like if I came from a musical family or anything like that. And my dad sings in the church choir. He usually sings the tenor line. He's great at finding harmonies and he has a lovely voice. My mom also sings in the church choir, but what I really attribute oboe wise and what I do in my world to my parents is the craftiness and the creativity that my mother has. We were always doing like arts and crafts in our house, uh, my brother and I growing up and I never wanted to color in coloring books. I wanted my mom to draw something with a Sharpie that then I would color. And she was always just coming up with like crafts and games. And so that's where that mindset with read making really comes into play, I think. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So when did you get serious and think about like, okay, the oboe is something that I want to pursue professionally. Maybe walk us through that decision and how that impacted um, your steps that came next, maybe some comments about your training, educational journey, that type of thing. By seventh grade, I thought that I wanted to be a band director. And by my freshman year of high school, I knew I wanted to be an oboe professor, which felt like a very bold statement, having not even gone to university yet, thinking like, that's the job that I want to do. Um, and I did find it, I had written it down as a freshman in high school, we had some assignment in one of our classes to like think about our future and what sort of job and what our income would be and kind of create a monthly budget. And that's kind of what sparked it and where I found uh, it written down. And by sparked it, I mean, uh, led to me kind of saying and deciding that that's what I wanted to do. Of course, I already had a passion for music. And so it was cool years later to find that written down that I'd kind of already put pen to paper with that. And so I knew when I was looking at undergraduate schools that I wanted to be a music major. And I knew going into my freshman year of college that I was already thinking about higher degrees so that I could pursue a university teaching career. Mm -hmm. You sound like such an exceptionally bright and motivated young person, even from middle school. Was that something that um, you had to work at? Like, was that something that you um, 
Like, did it come naturally to you just to follow that curiosity? Yeah. And I, I think curiosity is a good word for it. Like I was just always curious and wanted to learn more. And I was very sure in my passion for music and also in my passion for teaching. Um, I have report cards from elementary school where my teachers cited that I was a very good teacher to my peers. If I finished my work early, I would help my peers. And one teacher even wrote that like, you know, Abby's really good at like using metaphors to explain things to her peers. And she's really good at peer teaching and um, figuring out how to make it make sense to someone. So that just the combination of my skill as a teacher and my passion for music, it just was always a no brainer for me. Um, If anything, the fact that it does tend to be a cliche for many people, and I don't mean cliche in a negative way, um, just in that it's commonly experienced this, what do I want to do with my life? Who am I? What do I want to be? I never felt that. And that was almost confusing because I was like, should I feel that? But I was very sure and I was very set. So I think I'm kind of the exception to the rule in that way. But I do have lots of empathy for people who um, kind of navigate a more winding path. And did you always know that uh, if you always knew you wanted it to be the oboe, did you know higher ed, academia is where I want to go or orchestral? Or how did you kind of see your career taking shape in those early years? Yeah, originally I thought I would be a band director and I did go to school for uh, music education for my undergraduate degree. Um, But before I even started school for my undergrad, when I was in high school, I already knew I wanted to do um, academia. I wanted to be an oboe professor and teach not just music, but my instrument specifically. And I knew that one of the best ways of doing that besides being um, a private teacher and and developing your own studio in your own city would be to teach your instrument at the collegiate level. Mm -hmm. So that was my goal. And because I knew I had a career path that involved lots of school, I did consciously choose to do my undergraduate degree in music education, Mm -hmm. even though I knew I wouldn't be a band director by that time because I wanted to learn how to be an educator and have those conversations of pedagogy. And I knew I'd continue on and continue to hone things more specifically to oboe after that. Okay, so talk us through, you know, you're an extremely motivated and uh, dedicated young oboe student. Um, Talk us through your journey through your multiple degrees, Um, and then how you got to where you are today. So for undergrad, I went to Baylor University and I studied with Dr. Doris Deloach and she's still very much, uh, my oboe mother and I still very much call her and I'm like, Dee Dee, (laughs) what do I do? (laughs) Um, my master's was at CU Boulder, which hosted IDRS this summer. I studied with, uh, Peter Cooper very inspired by him as both a teacher and a pedagogue. And then my doctorate was at University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, which isn't too far from where I am right now at at the Ohio State. 
My doctorate went by in a flash. It's, you know, typically a three-year program. I spent two years on campus, finished all of my coursework in those two years, always taking a semester and a half load to finish early. And I used my third year to complete my doctoral dissertation research, which was funded by a Fulbright grant. And I used that to study in Vienna, Austria and complete my research there. So we've had a couple Fulbright scholars on the pod. I think three. I think Martin Schuring, Carrie McCarthy, and, and you would be the third. Um, and it's such a esteemed, aspirational experience. Um, I'd love to just kind of sink our teeth into the Fulbright experience if we could. And could we begin with what to me has always been the most mystifying part of it, which is getting an idea and applying. And so can we first hear about your experience of having this idea that a Fulbright could be something cool for you to experience to it, to actually getting the opportunity, especially for any current students or faculty uh, who may still be considering pursuing (laughs) that? What does that look like? I know there's a lot of mentoring that goes into it, right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the premise of the Fulbright is that you want to go somewhere and research, or there's also Fulbright grants for people to go and teach English, not English as a language, but um, you'll teach as a native English speaker about American culture. They actually tell you not to talk about grammar and that sort of thing. So there's study research grants through Fulbright, which I had, and there's ETAs, English teaching assistants. And um They tend to reserve the study research ones for people like a master's student working on a thesis, a doctoral student working on a dissertation, or a faculty scholar. And that's not to say that you couldn't get it otherwise, but it makes for a more compelling case for why you're doing that research. Mm -hmm. Um, So you need research which has sort of a case for why do you have to go there? You know, it can't just be, well, I want to (laughs) go to Berlin and study with Albrecht Meyer because he's a world famous oboist. Okay, that's wonderful. But Elaine Duvoss is a world famous oboist and she's here in the United States. Like, why do you have to go to Germany? Mm -hmm. So this is where um, this is where the grant writing skills really kick in. It kind of justifying why it's important, why you need to go there, and also why it's not going to benefit just you in your career, but others in your field. Mm-hmm. Um, Fulbright understands that this would be a great opportunity for you and your career. <laughs> they care more how you're going to turn around and share that with others. So that's kind of the missional purpose behind everything. And you know not what you ask when you ask about my application process, because <laughs> I applied more than once and I was told no. Um, and it was it was a four years of trying to get this grant before I got it. That makes me actually like, like I'm already rooting for you a thousand percent, but now I'm <laughs> rooting for you like 2000 more percent. Wow, thanks. You know, like that, that's <laughs> the grit and the determination to actually do that four times and then you get to mm-hmm. do it. That's so phenomenal. And stubbornness. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever said stubbornness couldn't pay off 
Um, so really what happened is I just caught the bug. Um, when I was a senior in undergrad, I was just motivated to study abroad. I wanted to study in a different country and I thought Germany or Austria would be great because of the rich uh, Western music history that exists in, in these countries and how that intersects with my instrument. Mm-hmm. So, you know, then after doing research, knowing that I needed some compelling reason for why it needed to be there, I discovered as a senior in undergrad, as someone who was about to have a whole degree in music, that there was a different version of my instrument that existed across the world, the Viennese oboe, and that it was special because it's the predecessor to what we play on and it's being maintained uh, perhaps also out of stubbornness <laughs> in Vienna, Austria. And so I just thought, oh my gosh, how did I not know about this? And I just, I wanted to learn more and I did what we all do. I started Googling it and like the most information I could find was Wikipedia. And I thought that was a shame. I turned to the IDRS double read, keyword searches of the Viennese oboe, like brought up passing statements and articles on the oboe's history, nothing really about the Viennese oboe itself. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, I want to fix that. And I just became really passionate about it. My first application was largely unsuccessful um, because uh, one aspect of the application is you need letters of affiliation. You need letters from people over there, which read as a letter of recommendation that says, yeah, we support this person's application. We want them to come here and study. And not only that, we also think we would benefit by this person being here. Maybe we could exchange ideas. Um, so there needed to be that. And I, I didn't have that. I was writing to Viennese oboists trying to get in contact with anyone and no one would write me back. I had a number of unrequited pen pals that I would periodically <laughs> write to and and never hear from. Every now and then I'd just write them a new email. Hi, it's me again. I love your oboe. <laughs> would love to come learn that thing. Um, And so I just, I couldn't get in touch with anyone. The community was very inaccessible. And with my first application, I I finally got in touch with a teacher in Graz. And uh, I didn't know this at the time, um, but really, truly, the Viennese oboe is just confined to Vienna. Uh, Mm. They're not playing it in cities outside of Vienna. But I got in touch with this teacher at Graz and asked for a letter of affiliation, told them kind of what it needed to say. They gave me a letter and it was like two sentences and it was like, Mr. Abby Yackel would be welcome to come study here. Apparently my name looks very masculine (laughs) to them. Um, And so, you know, while it was a letter of affiliation and it it existed and it said that they would save a place in their studio for me, um, it was not strong. They had no idea what I was trying to do or how they could support that. So, you know, I wasn't terribly surprised when the first application result was a no, uh, was being declined, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And I just kept at it. I just periodically still tried to make connections. I'd always ask teachers and colleagues if they knew anyone over there that they could put me in touch with. And that never led anywhere. No one ever knew anyone. (laughs) Viennese oboists are very much in a bubble. 
Hmm. Um, but I, I kept at it very stubbornly. And one year, four years after my first application, I finally got an email back from Karl Radovanovich, who is the maker of Viennese oboes. He makes Rado Viennese oboes. And he wrote me back and he thought it was cool that I was trying to do this research. And um, I that was great for me. Um, he put me in touch with one person. That person put me in touch with another person. And, and really just everything began to fall into place. And I was able to apply again for a Fulbright. Um, that would have been the fall of 2015 was my successful application. And that application was armed with two strong letters of recommendation from Josef Bednarik, who is the president of the Viennese Oboe Society. And he was also solo oboist of the Volksoper. And also uh, a letter from Universität Professor Harald Hurt, who would become my teacher at the university in Vienna that I studied at. Um, before we continue on, I'm sure Gali as an oboist has a million questions, but, um, half our listenership is bassoonists. Mm. So can you maybe give us a 101, what is a Viennese oboe? I don't know what that is. I was wondering the same thing. (laughs) Okay. So for everyone, yeah, what is that? (laughs) Cause 'cause like I said, I I was about to have a degree in oboe and I didn't know what it was. Um, And very often when I take my Viennese oboe lecture recital to universities, like the preparation for my visit is how those students learn that there is a Viennese oboe because their teacher's like, hey, this Viennese oboe scholar is going to come talk to you. And so you should know what this is before she arrives. Um, So that's usually how it happens. So the Viennese oboe, is uh, more or less uh, a a period instrument of the Romantic era. It also has very strong ties to the classical era. This is the oboe that was being played on in in Austria and many Germanic regions uh, before the French oboe was innovated at the turn of the 20th century. And at the turn of the 20th century, um, for many reasons, the arrival of the French conservatory oboe being accepted as an improvement by many people, and also a general distaste for um, Germanic things with the world wars going on. Mm. That led to the downfall of the Viennese oboe and the rise of the French oboe. Mm. The French oboe has a very different sound to the Viennese, and the Viennese oboe is more in line with the traditional oboe sound of the Baroque oboe. And so Viennese oboists did not accept the arrival of the French conservatory oboe, and they've continued to maintain um, this piece of living oboe history. And they also hold very strong ties to this lineage and tradition of these great composers from Mozart to Mahler, which... Um, the Viennese oboe is relevant too. And as I said, it, it is a romantic innovation, the Viennese oboe, but um, its innovation reflects a desire to maintain classical instrument building ideals. The bore of the Viennese oboe is much more similar to the classical oboe. So acoustically what's going on with the instrument shares a lot in common with uh, the classical and more traditional bore. 
you said from Mozart to Mahler. Mm. They play Mahler. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does it project? <laughs> I love that question. Um, Viennese oboe has to doesn't have to work as hard to project. It has measurably twice the harmonics in the sound as compared to the French conservatory oboe. Oh, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around this. <laughs> this this happens when I take my Viennese oboe lecture recital to universities. Like I'll play both oboes for the students. It's usually the, the oboe studio or maybe the whole woodwind studio is there. And um, at one point I'll ask the students, you know, which do you have a preference? Which one did you prefer the sound to? And it's amazing to me how often the oboe players are saying, I think I actually prefer the Viennese. And they feel like they're betraying <laughs> their <laughs> instrument. Um, and the first time I looked at the research and the acoustics of the sound between these two oboes, I felt betrayed. I was like, <laughs> it has twice the harmonics. I'm like, no. And I went to the person who did the research because he was at the university I attended as a Fulbrighter. And I asked him about it. I was like, yeah, but who did you have playing the French oboe? Were they even a French oboist? Did, did they even, you know, have the proper reeds or whatever? And then he told me, you know, who it was. And I can't disclose that information, but they're professionals. And so I was like, oh, this is not welcomed news. Like, because we all, you know, consider harmonics to be a wonderful thing to have in your sound. And mm -hmm. so the French oboe, it has a narrower bore and that resulted in greater stability. Mm, okay. But it was a loss in flexibility. Okay. And, and changed, you know, the harmonics of the instrument as well. And, um, you know, even with reeds, like we are all searching for some sort of balance between stability and flexibility that we find acceptable. And for Viennese oboists, they were not willing to sacrifice the flexibility. Um, and they did not regard the French conservatory oboe as an improvement. This is really changing how I'm thinking about the acoustics of the instrument. Mm. Because I always assumed that uh, the earlier oboes could not project as far, which was why we, you know, modified it and created a smaller bore so that we could project the back of larger halls. But that is not true. I'm not an acoustics expert. <laughs> but just with that one example of, of comparison that we've gone through. Wow. The, the sound of the Viennese oboe um, does project so well because of all of the harmonics present in the tone. Does your research into the Viennese oboe change your approach to the French oboe, the modern? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, the biggest way that I see that is... Um, in the low register and in my treatment of C's. Uh, so let me explain. Um, the Viennese oboe is, it has greater flexibility, so it's just much more responsive and friendly in the low register. Mm. Um, so I no longer hate Dvorak <laughs> second oboe excerpts <laughs> because I think I approach them with more, um, I don't know, uh, acceptance of the fact that it should have been full and rich. Mm. 
Um, and so I approach low notes with less fear, I would mm. say, because it's something that was a strength on the Viennese oboe that it would be responsive and comfortable. And so I always try to go for sounding responsive and comfortable. Um, and if it's supposed to be piano or something, then I just like cool it with the vibrato or I cool it in terms of like energy or, or color, but always aiming for that comfort and security. And then with the treatment of C's, um, I know that a lot of oboists don't like the note C, no matter the octave. And of course we're plagued with these in our Mozart concerto and in our Haydn concerto. And C is actually a really cushy, beautiful note on the Viennese oboe. That's fascinating. And <laughs> the high C in the ledgers on side octave C, as we call it, the Viennese oboe fingering for that is the same as the fingering that some people use on the English horn of having forks mm. in both hands, uh, one, three, four, six, mm -hmm. if you will. This double forked fingering on the Viennese oboe, you know, it gets more fingers down. And so there's a nice, healthy resistance feeling to it. And so to spend four measures on that note, crescendoing or shaping at the beginning of the Mozart concerto, gosh, it's a moment to show off, not a moment to fear. And so I try and take that attitude back to the French oboe. And honestly, the fingering does work on the French oboe. So sometimes I practice with it. Um Oh. just for a little confidence boost. But then I, I go back to the fingering we're supposed to use. <laughs> so your research into this seems like very fertile area um, where there's great need where, I mean, I'm, I feel like American oboes don't know anything about this for the most part. Um, it just screams there doesn't have to be one way and we can be informed by many other ways that other people use that are equally great. Absolutely. We kind of get stuck sometimes and there's only one right way to do something. Oh gosh. And if there were, there wouldn't be so many successful people everywhere, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I agree. I love that. having that takeaway from what you're saying. Definitely. What's funny is I've actually, <laughs> I actually returned from Vienna sounding more American than I did before. I've not ever been a very American sounding player with my tone. And usually people who don't like my tone are other oboists, but people who mm -hmm. love my tone are singers and string players and uh, pianists. And so that's always really interesting because I've always just tried to sound like me and just be true to what, what I'm doing, what my reads are doing and my own sound concept, which is very international. Like a lot of my oboe idols are like all over the place. It's, it's a spectrum. Um, but what's so funny is Viennese oboe players actually view their sound concept, their phrasing ideology, they view a lot in common with American oboe playing. And actually, while I was in Vienna studying, um, the editor of the Viennese Oboe Journal had asked me to write an article on the American School of Oboe Playing because mm. they wanted to hear my perspective as a native, just so that they could draw their own conclusions of the connections that they sense. And um, 
Yeah, I just think it's very interesting that I, I, I traveled around the world and I actually came back sounding more American than when I left. But <laughs> <laughs> So if somebody hears this interview and is just set on fire with the desire to learn the Viennese oboe, where should they start? <sighs> well, um, it sounds self-serving, but they should start with my resources. Um, the fact of the matter is, is I've created a lot of uh, the first resources on this instrument that exist in English. Um, there are great resources in German, which is the native language there in Austria, um, but there's there are very few of them. Uh, so I would say start with that and reach out to me. I mean, that's that's the point of what I did with Fulbright is that I'm trying to increase the collaboration and connection between our communities and their community has been historically siloed um, and that's something which I feel is misunderstood on the outside sometimes people view it incorrectly as oh they want nothing to do with us but from my time spent on the inside I could tell you that it's not the case at all um, they are always pleased when I tell them how I'm sharing what they do with others and they always thank me for it. And uh, they are always surprised that people are interested because they don't think anyone would be interested because the rest of the world did move on. Um, so I, I think there's just misunderstanding there. And the aim with Fulbright is to increase mutual understanding between nations within our own respective academic areas. Um, I guess my last question about the Fulbright and Viennese oboe, and then we'll definitely get into other aspects of you as an oboist, is um, this is all reminding me of the relationship between the French bassoon and the German bassoon. Um, and when we have had on French bassoon ex experts in the past, I've asked this question um, and you've touched on it a little bit, but, you know, in classical music, we emphasize a lot of times performance practice mm -hmm. and for these composers these viennese composers you know in your opinion i know i know you spoke about it with playing dvorak and that type of thing um but is there it seems like there would be a lot to be gained from hearing the oboes that Mahler would have been composing for or that Beethoven was composing for. And does any of your perspective or um, even that which can be gained by French oboe players have, um, bring in that performance practice angle? Absolutely. And that, that was what my research was focused on was uh, this cross application. I was, I had two lessons a week uh, when I was studying in Vienna one was learning how to play the Viennese oboe so that I could play its relevant repertoire on its instrument or an instrument more highly similar to the one that it was written for. Again, a disclaimer for any academics out there, I'm not trying to say that the Viennese oboe is a classical oboe, I'm just saying it's more similar. And we also have a more direct lineage with its musicians mm -hmm. to these traditions. Right. Um, so that was the experiencing on the instrument which it was written for or more similar to um, and what I could gain from that. My other weekly lesson was on my French oboe and I was 
focusing on performance practice and interpretation in the Viennese style. Mm. Um, and so it was these two things combined and how I take them back to the French oboe. That's the foundation for my research. And just like French and German bassoon, it is very informative. Um, and I, I also hear from people who do that research that it, it's also that, you know, the Viennese oboe is more responsive and uh, in some ways more comfortable. And I hear the same for bassoon uh, with the comparison between the two. And so I think that that's really interesting. And the performance, pa performance practice aspect is definitely one of the motivations to why all of this matters. What's the point? And it's that um, I argue that the Viennese oboe holds the key to understanding this repertoire better. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, I can't wait to dive in and read your research. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, you know, knowing all of this about the different traditions of different oboes and different uh, oboistic cultures, what are some hidden gems of repertoire that you can share with us? I love this. I love this. Okay. First of all, the first assignment I played on Viennese oboe, my teacher was like, you have to play this. It's like every young student does it. It's a rite of passage. And I was like this quasi beginner because I had all these transferable skills from the French oboe, but like I was dealing with all these new fingerings and a different read. Um, and that piece was the clue cart. We know Klukart from Quintet. Yeah. Um, and he wrote this really beautiful Concertstück, concertino, which is just, I mean, everyone should be playing this on their undergrad degree recital. I mean, it's just this great piece. It's this like moderate opening, this really like gorgeous melodic cadenza, uh, and then a beautiful lilting middle section that cadenza comes back and then we have this fun upbeat faster ending which the technique is very idiomatic no matter the oboe but especially on the viennese and it's just a great piece i love it so the clue card would be my number one choice um and then i've got two more for you one of them is uh the wunderer sonata in B minor. At the moment, there's only one recording of this. Uh, I found it on Naxos, Cynthia Del Almeida. And at the moment, though, um, I'm working on producing an album for Sebastian Bright, who's solo oboist of the Vienna Philharmonic, and he's going to make a recording of it on the Viennese oboe, which it's intended for. Um, the Wunderer Sonata is four movements. The first movement's like really brooding. The Second movement is very scherzo and chromatic. The third movement's very like alpine horn calls. And the fourth movement is just this like really fun jig, I guess. It's in compound meter. It, it's a blast. So that's the Wunderer Sonata. Um, and then lastly, my recommendation for repertoire I've discovered through the Viennese oboe would be the Cauder Sonata. And the Cowder is just this beautiful rhapsodic piece, but you need, need, need a great pianist to collaborate with because there are no bar lines. Oh, oh. wow. 
Yeah, there are no bar lines. Um, Cowder is a great example of an exile artist, uh, somebody who oh. fled uh, during the wars and sought safety. And um, yeah, his music is just astounding. Hugo Cowder. Those are amazing oh. suggestions. Thank you. Okay. Switching gears completely. Okay. <laughs> you are the U.S. brand ambassador for Marigo. Yes. And I'd love to ask you a little bit about that. How did you get into being an Amerigo artist and um, what kind of work do you do with them? Yeah. So I switched to Marigo in 2017. While I was living in Vienna, it was convenient and easy to go to Paris. And this was also around the time where I was just ready to buy a new oboe. And when I went to the Marigo boutique in Paris, um, every read I plugged my oboe into just felt like a fit. It just felt compatible, felt like I finally was sounding the way that I wanted to. And I just loved how the instrument felt like it was ringing in my hands. And so that's when I switched to Marigo and I love the instruments. And that's also when my relationship with the brand began. Later on in 2018, while I was a professor in Texas, I was at TMEA, Texas Music Educators Association, which I had been attending since I had been in high school. So I had many memories at this convention and I was walking around looking for the Marigo booth and I couldn't find it. And so I wrote to Renaud Podolowski, who's the CEO of Marigo, and I was like, where's Marigo? You know, I'm here at TMEA. I wanted to see the booth and say hi. And, you know, he explained to me that they stopped doing that convention. And I just kind of argued that I thought that they should be there. And this began a relationship where over the next few years, um, I was exhibiting for Marigo in a very like unofficial way, more as just a friend of the brand. Um, mm -hmm. They were helping me with my expenses to get to the convention that I was going to be at anyways. And in exchange, I was working the booth for them. And it was very symbiotic and fun for me. I got to spend the week with these beautiful instruments, like just playing them and having fun. And then after Midwest in 2020, is that right? No. And after Midwest in 2021, they asked me um, if I would work for them in a more official capacity. And we kind of dreamed up what that could look like together, uh, what sorts of projects I would do. And what that includes is the exhibiting that I've been doing, but also putting on oboe days at various universities across the country, where we're going to bring Amerigo guest artists and have master classes, have a booth of instruments for people to try, um, and just really focus on putting on a really wonderful event at these universities for oboists in the region. And I'm, because I am the U.S. brand ambassador, I could very um, selfishly put one of these locations at Ohio State. And I was thrilled when I learned that Galit here played Marigo, I was just like, uh, okay, I know who I'm inviting. <laughs> so I called Galit and I was like, you play Marigo? Will you come and be the guest artist and headline this event at Ohio State? And 
Um, we're just so happy that you agreed to that. This event. Like, put is... a fork in me. I'm done. I'm <laughs> yeah. <die> happy. <laughs> and this event is coming up soon. This is in November on November 5th, but I believe by the time this podcast airs, it will have happened. So I'm just going to already say that it went great and <laughs> Philippe played beautifully and it was a wonderful day. <laughs> You know, it really was. What fond memories. Yes. From November 5th, 2022. No. Best day ever. Honestly, like not even, I mean, just totally authentically. I love Mariko so much. Mm. I had a very similar experience to you where it was just like, oh, it's my voice. (laughs) It just, it just made things click. Like everything was just working the the way I wanted to. And I just was comfortable. Mm-hmm. I just felt freeing. I didn't, I didn't realize that I didn't feel that way before. I didn't realize the oboe could feel that way. Mm-hmm. Okay. We love to end by asking this question. And if you can believe it, it's already been an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, what advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Oh my gosh. Wait, I knew this question would come though. (laughs) (sighs) It's such a rude question. But if I could, I mean, tangibly and literally, but also what has struck me over the last hour is that you are someone who creates opportunities for yourself and um, who really just pursues your interests and creates windows where maybe there's not one. That's especially great for us to model, especially you as a as a younger professional woman. I'm really excited to put that on display for our listeners. Mm-hmm. So I'll probably cut that out, but sure, I think sure. that's a, especially something that, you know, I, <laughs> I would want to emulate. Yeah. 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 No, thanks for jogging my memory for me. <laughs> I, I would say what I wish I knew before going into this um, was that you just need to make your own opportunities, Um, whatever experience it is that you need, go out there and find it and create it. You know, during my master's program, I remember I was on the sub list for a a regional orchestra in the area. And another colleague of mine said, oh, well, why don't they call me? I didn't know they were. And when was the sub list audition? I was like, there was no sub list audition. I just emailed the personnel manager and asked if I could come play for them after rehearsal one day for consideration. Um, So I wasn't waiting to see that posted. I just, I wanted them to know. Um, Likewise, between finishing my doctorate and my first job, I had the first gap year in my life. And as you can imagine, just from spending time with me today. Like I was anxious. I was antsy and I didn't like kind of not doing exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a university professor and I had this gap year. And so I, I knocked on doors and I emailed a community college in my area. And I said, I know you're not hiring, (laughs) but if there are any music courses that need covering, please call me. I'm in the area. I'll teach whatever. I need this experience. And, um, 
you know, they wrote back to me and they're like, you're right. We're not hiring. Like, why are you talking to us? <laughs> um, but guess what? Hurricane Harvey happened that fall. And there were teachers who, unfortunately, their cars were flooded and totaled in the flood and they could not go to class. This was pre everyone using Zoom because obviously that would have been the solution. And so I got a call and they were like, okay, we're sitting here with this totally unsolicited cover letter from you. <laughs> Uh, would you be able to cover music appreciation, American popular music? And boom, then I was doing that. And I had, you know, these two courses at the community college. I had my private studio of 33 students oh. in Houston, and um, I was treating it like a, a university studio. We had special events. We gave studio recitals, and I was making my own experiences that I was needing. I wasn't waiting for someone to... Um, offer an opportunity for me. I was just trying to find my own way. So that would be my experience. Just like get out there and make it happen and don't be afraid to be bold. Abby, you are an absolute inspiration. <laughs> this has been such a wonderful hour. Thank you so, so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. Thanks for having me. You opened Pandora's box. You knew not what you asked with so many of these things. But um, yeah, no, it was a pleasure to talk to you today. Anytime. Okay, we hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, yeah, we hope you did. And follow us on social media. I'm tired. I don't feel good. Um Rate and review. Follow us on social. We love you. Galit, who's on the next episode? <laughs> on the next episode, we have a wonderful conversation with Nancy Belmont, assistant professor of bassoon at Louisiana State University. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Go make reads. <laughs>